I'm really grateful for Ephesians. Sergeant Defoe came, and the line that really caught me is human, just, I am a girl who wants to stand in the world and find meaning and honor. Um, thank you, Adam. That was, that resonated, triggered me, triggered my heart a little bit. Um, second one. She concluded Ephesians, which was a, a letter written to the church, as that it is a cosmic way out because God had given instructions to the church to find their vulnerability, their protection, their safety, their salvation within God's cosmic doing in the world. And this is super big. It was kind of a whirlwind, the book of Ephesians. And we left off here last week. So today we're opening the Gospel of John. Very different than Ephesians. Ephesians was written to the church. The Gospel of John was written for the world. And so I believe John is one of the most accessible books in the entire Bible. Um, I believe at every level of simplicity and complexity of understanding the work of God, our creator in the world, John is um, accessible. And we're going to start. I have 20 minutes to do the introduction to the most influential gospel in church history. So the introduction, though, doesn't need me to speak a lot for itself, though, because it is a beautiful introduction. Um, so next slide. The Gospel of John is a cosmic way in. Um, I have a friend, Esma Ali, some of you know her. She happens to be a Muslim woman, and um, she went to Bible Study Fellowship and took a course on the Gospel of John, and she could not stop talking about it. She loved it, loved John. Um, she's still Muslim, which is good. She's uh, very active in her community. She's uh, really intelligent. And she speaks of the Gospel of John like I've never heard anybody speak about the Gospel of John. And I'm, I, I've wondered at times when speaking to Esma, if Christians could get as excited about John's Gospel as she is. So uh, my invitation for us this morning is to let our hearts be triggered in a, in a new way with this Gospel. We're going to be in it all fall. And um, I feel like it's a heart gospel. The other gospels uh, are super, um, I don't know. John is special. I think it triggers a lot of the intimate longings of the heart. And the other gospels can be more heady and more direct, uh, abrupt, straightforward. They kind of disrupt everything, those other gospels. And John is more... Um, I think like Michael prayed the, to take the step back, take the long view, and let it open, open wider, 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 um, as the love of God does for us. Um, so I hope our hearts can be triggered by this gospel. Um, Richard Rohr describes um, when... There needs to be a shift from head to heart. 
he describes it as very beautiful. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I, I missed my last slide. I, I got to thinking I wouldn't need slides today because we were having some technical difficulties, but the next slide is really good. Put the next slide on before we talk about Richard Rohr. This, unfortunately, has become John in the world, in the United States of America. This is John. And yes, there are signs in John, but they are not like that one. Um, as we allow our hearts to be triggered, I am also inviting you to put this John somewhere else. Um, run far from that John. That is not John, that is not the gospel, and that is a very realistic picture of our context, though. So let's allow the broader sense of the gospel to speak into our context. Um, but go ahead and put the next slide up. Richard Rohr challenges us when we want a, a shift from our heads, kind of like what Erin mentioned last night, her, um, her thought, the, just the thought world where it just gets so crazy in your mind and all these things don't make sense, and we feel overwhelmed by the weight of the world, and our thoughts don't, we, we want to give up, and our anxiety takes us down. Um, Richard Rohr says, let's swing back to the heart. Wake up the wave to the ocean. Um, this really stuck out to me as I read John this last week. If we're a wave, what is the ocean, and what is that? How do we become the ocean as a wave? Um, we were at the beach a couple weeks ago, and we had to be called out of the water because of a shark. And all the people got out of the water. <laughs> There's a six-foot shark somewhere near us, and no one ever really saw it, but some people on the pier saw it, and we had to, we had to become the ocean for a minute because the ocean is much more chaotic and dangerous than you know, playing in the little waves. So um, sit with this, this challenge, to wake up the wave to the ocean as we read John. Um, the ocean is vast. What God is doing in the universe and has done in the universe and will continue to do is vast. And if we isolate it and put it on a sign and, and Christians, if we walk away from the beauty of the gospel, We need to become vast again. Esma has a vast view of faith in her tradition and in many religious traditions. It's vast. So um, we're going to look at the prologue or the overture today. Some people call it, like to call it one thing. Some people call it another. It's the introduction to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Um, every Gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they like to start the book by going backwards. The other gospel writers went back to the prophets, back to Abraham. One of them, I think, went back to Adam. And John goes back even further than the faith tradition. And John goes back to the creation of the universe. And um, you can put the scripture up. This is John chapter 1. Let's stand for the reading of the gospel. I think Esma would be standing. She'd be getting all crazy right now. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, different than John, potentially, the writer. Um, he came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Next slide. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This was he, um, skip the parentheses, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Hang on to that one. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart who has made him known. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Leslie Newbigin, a writer and scholar, summarizes the book of John very simply. So if you get nothing out of this sermon today, take this. The light has come. So I'm going to ramble a little more about this beautiful introduction, but if you doze off or get distracted or whatever, if you forget anything else, just remember the light has come. So my thought, if the light has come, is what's the big deal? We live in a world where there is light everywhere. We have made and will continue to make enough lights so that very few of us will ever have to experience a thick darkness, so thick that we would experience what it, is, what it is even like to want light. I don't really know what it is like to want to see because there are multiple options for seeing anything I want at any time. Oh. I can't really even know what light is without having ever experienced darkness. I mean, I've been, I've been to a couple of places. Sandra and I were talking about her trip to El Salvador and places without electricity. Um, been to a couple of places where there's no electricity and you like really experience the thickness of, of darkness. But I'm not sure I've, I mean, that's a special trip for a special time. We are oversaturated with light. We have so much light, I can't fall asleep at night. There's street lights. We're not even on a busy street, but there's street lights that keep me awake at night. Um, so to see the light, we must somehow experience the darkness. And with that said, Mountainside is actually pretty good at darkness. <laughs> We've wallowed in darkness, different seasons. We've allowed each other to talk about darkness. We've been honest about darkness. Um, and I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful. Um, there's a range of what our experiences of darkness are. Some darkness is abusive and unspeakable. Some darkness is more passive or meaningless or um, 
depressive. Um, but for Mountainside, I want us to maybe, maybe a better qu qu uh, question for the modern Western Christian is, since we don't experience physical darkness, and in order to do so, you have to work pretty hard to find it, go off the grid or something, but since we don't experience the thick physical darkness, um, I wonder if a good question for the modern Christian is, how do we experience the true source of light from God and kind of distinguish that from the artificial light? Artificial light is everywhere. Sasha asked me in the car last night, having no idea what I would be speaking on today. She says, Mommy, you said the, you said the term artificial light one day. And I'm like, oh, scary. Uh, she's like, what does that mean? And I said, um, well, there's the lights in the sky that God created that give us light, the sun, and there's fire. It's, it's like natural light. And then there's all this, maybe it's not fair to say artificial, but man-made light, man and woman-made light, the way we've turned the light on. It's on. I don't think it's going off. Um, then she started crying, crying like you've never seen a nine-year-old girl cry. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on? What, what are you thinking about? And she said, Mama, remember the, the Planet Earth episode when the, the baby turtles, they were, their eggs hatched on the beach and they started um, moving towards the city instead of the moon? But their mama was in the water by the moon? Like, anyone seen this episode? It's <laughs> unbelievable. The turtles go the wrong way. They hatch. They're supposed to go into the water to find mama. Instead, they go towards this giant city and they get lost in this like gutter and then they all slowly die. And mama's somewhere out in the ocean towards the moonlight and it's just devastating. And so that's, that's artificial light. Yeah. It's tragic. <laughs> um, but Leslie Newbigin, who's a writer and scholar, he says this about the passage we just read. Let's go back to the last, the last verse. Thank you. Before time, God was. When God creates, God speaks, and all things come to be. God's creative word is also a revealing word. Nothing but God can create. It is God who separates the light from the darkness. And I forgot to mention that the darkness in Genesis 1 that this is referring to, it, I mean, in a sense, it just simply means meaninglessness or a great absence. Just the most vast meaninglessness you could ever wrap your mind around. Um, he goes on to say, none of us can make light without being given something to do, to do so. Throughout history, we have researched and experimented with light, not with darkness. Darkness has just always been darkness. It is what confronts one who turns away from the true source of his being, tries to find meaning elsewhere, and is thereby plunged into the meaninglessness. But the light shines in the darkness. The light does not eliminate the darkness, but it goes on shining. The business of light is to banish darkness and the darkness remains the background to the story in which John 
will tell up to the moment when Judas walks out of the light of the upper room into the darkness of the night and right up to the final words of Jesus' consecration prayer. The world has not known God, but I have known God, and these disciples know that God has sent me. I have made known to them God's name, and I will make it known. Um, you can uh, go forward a couple slides. This is us in a cave this summer, and so, uh, super scary, this long cave up in the state of Washington. If you walk in, you can walk in, I don't know, for hours, but we only walked in about 45 minutes. Um, and then it kept getting, it kept getting more narrow. And then, so the kids kept crawling. <laughs> and I just stopped. We had like a, ba a toddler with us, so two mamas just stopped with the toddlers and just waited. And um, Kurt and the other dad and the kids kept crawling and crawling and crawling. It was super scary. And then when we turned off the flashlights, the darkness was so thick, we would do these tricks with our hands to like see, like to, to really try and see if you could see. And we kept doing it. <laughs> if you had been watching us, it would have been like, oh. no, you can't see. It is completely dark in this cave. Um, and the flashlights went off. And here you go, next slide. Surprise, that's what it looked like. So this is the image in our mind. This is what darkness is like. Um, I also read a story this week about Johnny Cash. Uh, you may love him or hate him, but this week will mark the 15th um, year after he died. Um, I know that because my dad died within the same two weeks, and my dad was a Johnny Cash fan. Johnny Cash had an experience in a cave where he... He went into a cave, but he walked like three hours in um, to die, to kill himself. He wanted to die there, and that was his plan. He was strung out and had a lot of amphetamines in his body, and um, he said he looked like death and felt like welcoming death, and he went in the cave to die. Um, but he didn't die, and instead, deep in the cave, in darkness like this, um, a sense came over him with peace and clarity and sobriety. Um, and then this gentle wind came and nudged him to start walking towards the light again. And now that I've actually been in a cave, I don't know how it could get windy in a cave. So the wind must have been purposeful. Um, he believes it was. People would talk about Johnny Cash though and they would say he was just obsessed with death, all his songs. like. He's just obsessed with death and darkness. That's all he ever sung about. And he would say, no, I was actually obsessed with the light. Um, he would answer, I'm actually obsessed with life and light. And because death has been so common and passive and so close, it has followed me everywhere in loneliness, addiction, anger, and the way I treat women. My relationships have just died at this point, he said. I need the light. So I am rather obsessed with the light. And then for the second portion of his life, he wrote gospel songs. He'd still sing the, the dark songs, and he would sing it all. And it's a beautiful mixture. But um, we're running short on time, so let's conclude with this. The Gospel of John has seven signs 
Uh, we're going to be looking at these signs or miracles, or they can be described as the greater things that showed us who Jesus was, what he did in his life and ministry before, the, before his death. Um, we're going to be looking at these seven signs, which are narratives, short narratives, and um, when we do so this fall, my encouragement to Mountainside Communion is to allow our hearts to be triggered again in the light, um, to look for the light, even though we're overexposed to things that show us light. Um, the signs will give us both a cosmic perspective about what God is doing in the gospel and then in the future, or, and what God has done, and it will also give us a very ordinary, detailed um, picture of what Jesus does as a human being, among human beings, as God is present with us and among us. It gives us very ordinary human details about um, what's going on. The kids are going to come in, but I'm going to keep talking a little bit. These signs will have to do with water, wine, hunger and bread, blindness and sight, being dead and being alive, darkness and light, sickness and health. Um, but in writing about these things, the, the gospel writer is writing about the presence of the living God in God's might and in God's mercy. Hi, welcome back. Welcome back, kids. And since we're in the gospel, and the gospel is accessible to every human being, including children, I'm going to read a quote about the gospel before we take communion. Before I do, Aaron prayed about um, the nation of Syria this morning. This week, Kurt had encouraged me to go into our dry cleaners, all-star cleaners, on right by Trader Joe's, um, you know, for the dry clean only items. And he said, you should go, you should go meet those people. They're a Christian family. They're from Syria. Um, and I've been in there a couple times, and they have um, Bible tracks, a track that says, you must be born again, which that is a, a, a statement of Jesus from John chapter 3. So this is the perfect week for me to go in and actually try and hear their story. This family is from Aleppo, um, the devastated oldest city in Syria. Um, I sat down with Heba, who is the wife, who works with her husband, um, and she told me basically her life story. And she's been a Christian for a long time, kind of like the nation of Syria has been a nation for such a long time. She is one, probably, her family might be some of the oldest Christians in the world, tracing back. And... She's honest about the darkness, about what it's like to move to the United States from Aleppo. They got out 
over five years ago, so they missed some of the more recent horrors of Aleppo. But she said, you know, it's still hard. I, I work from seven to seven, and I barely see my kids because it costs too much to live here. And she's not complaining. Um, but the faith piece of the story was really interesting to me because she said, I started reading the gospel last year. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Thanks for telling me that. The gospel is good news to all who are perishing. That's all of us. So I thought of this quote, and I will read it. Children, sit tight. This is the last thing I'm going to say. Um, Rachel Held Evans says, the gospel means that every small story is part of a sweeping story. Every ordinary life part of an extraordinary, extraordinary movement. God is busy making all things new. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has opened that work to everyone who wants in on it. The church is not a group of people that believe all the same things. The church is a group of people caught up in the same story with Jesus at the center. I found myself wanting into Heba's gospel story because what a life to live. I felt, found myself wanting into more of Esma's story. Um, Heba explained her life in Syria. She said, I lived like a queen. I had housemaids and I had, we had factories and we had, we had it all. And now we operate a cleaners on Huntington Boulevard in Monrovia. <laughs> and I, now when I go back to that cleaners, I'm going to take the ordinary on and give my friend a hug and look forward to hearing and being with them in the future of their story here in Monrovia because that's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. The light has come. Amen, Mountainside? Why don't we say that together? The light has come. <laughs> good job. Um,